The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So I want to tell you a story. All right. I hope it will become relevant why I'm telling you a story. It's 1986. I am 19 years old. Okay. I had a beautiful, I will characterize it as a beautiful diaphanous mullet. And I had a mullet too. I was 17. Okay, good. All right. So we're mulleting together. But I happen to be in my hometown. I've gotten an internship at the hometown newspaper in the sports department. Are you at all familiar with what it's like to be in a sports department? I am not. Okay. It's like basically a frat. Okay, uh-huh. but mostly filled with people who are never quite good enough to Insular, make the varsity team. masculine. Absolutely. Kind it's of some sexism raging. Maybe not even recognize. Maybe sexism wasn't even a recognized term. Okay. Right. <laughs> so uh, I'm low man on the totem pole, so I'm constantly being mocked and, and bullied. But I finally got my big break. The sports editor said to me, all right, Almond, nobody else wants to do this. Do you want to go interview Billie Jean King? Wow. Okay. But- I'm informed that because it's an afternoon paper, like there's nobody there at night other than the night editor, Michelle. And when I told people that I was going to be doing this story, because I was quite proud, every one of the sports guys was like, oh, Michelle, are you going to, see, you going to talk to Michelle? Are you going to see Michelle? Uh-huh. With the kind of wink that I took to mean like, oh, I guess Michelle's hot. Like she's the hot overnight editor or something. It was kind of this leering wink. So I go and I interview Billie Jean King, who was awesome and very interesting to talk to. And I rush back to the newsroom. It's totally empty. It's like midnight. But I can see that the mysterious Michelle is over across the newsroom, kind of in the green glow of her terminal. And I don't know how to explain it, Cheryl, other than to say that, like, something in my normal circuitry trying to sort of size her up, it wasn't adding up. She was wearing a floral print dress, but she had very broad shoulders. Um, She had long hair, but it was sort of thin down the middle. She had a fairly prominent jaw. And she had her hands, I remember, on her lap, kind of hidden away. But as she would have to type, she would bring her hands up. And they were pretty, they had pretty big knuckles and and prominent veins. And when she looked at me, she could see that I was looking at her. And there was a sort of awful moment where she was realizing that I had figured out that she was a woman who had been a man. Mm -hmm. And it's 1986. I didn't even know what the term was. But I remember that look that passed between us, which was one of her recognizing my recognition and my alarm and confusion. And the next morning I come into work and the sports editor is there sitting at his desk. He's kind of a gruff guy typing away. And without really, he wasn't looking at me. He's just sitting there typing at his terminal. He's like, hey, Almond, you get your story file? I said, yeah, I got the story file. He said, everything go okay with Michelle? And I said, yeah, yeah, everything went okay. And he said, without missing a beat, he said, you ask her why she cut her dick off? Mm. And, I, you know, I said, I don't know what I said. No, I, it didn't come up or something. But what was fascinating about that, I know that makes him sound like a jerk, and I think it was obviously a very jerky thing to say, but what I learned later was started to make a little bit of sense of it, which was 
that that night editor, Michelle, had been for many years a male sports writer and the best friend of the sports editor, or at least a good friend of the sports editor, who had wanted to make sure that she was still had a job after her transition, but had put her on the night desk, or maybe she'd requested to be on the night desk, um, but that his relationship to her was long and complicated. And I was haunted for years thinking about this, partly because it's a story that speaks a lot about masculine privilege and... And uh, cisgendered privilege. Yeah, but also because in a certain way, I feel like our culture... 30 years later, mm-hmm. is essentially in the equivalent spot that I was in as a 19-year-old mulleted kid of just confusion and alarm about what are we to call or do about or think about people who are born in one gender and realize at some point that's not my true gender and go about effectuating becoming the gender that they truly feel yeah, they are. Yeah, they're right? born of one sex and then they have a gender identity that doesn't that, right. That's not the same as as right. that sex they were born with. I, I think you're right. I, I mean, I obviously think we've we've done some advancements since those thirty years. If only it's become a conversation, a national conversation. But what we do here on Dear Sugar Radio is tell people stories. Right. We receive letters from individuals who are struggling with something. And today we're going to focus on trans men. Well, we're going to talk about trans women obviously in future episodes. But today, uh, the two questions and the guest we have. We're really looking at the experience of being a trans man and understanding other people's perspectives, listening carefully and deeply to other people's experiences and realities and truths and stories. That's the only way we gain enlightenment. And that's what I, you know, I hope that we're going to do today. We're going to read a couple letters, like I said, and have a guest. Why don't I get to that first letter? Let's do it. Dear Sugars, I'm a young guy in university undergoing a gender transition. Since coming out at the start of this academic year, I've never been so centered and calm. I'm happy with life. I've finally gotten to a point where I can allow myself to get into a serious relationship with someone who truly respects my identity and sees me as nothing but male. The only issue I have is that my mom is in total denial. She has known now for two and a half years, but will not respect my pronouns or my new name. I tried to bring her along on the transition from the beginning. But after two years of trying to convince her that this is real, I couldn't wait any longer, and I finally started hormones. All of our arguments center on her being uncomfortable with my transition. It's framed as concern. My mom has never been happy in her life, and I cannot allow her to pull me down with her. I struggle terribly knowing that I'm betraying her perception of me and taking away her little girl. But this is who I am, and I can't do anything about it. The stuff she says is offensive and wrong, and try as I might to understand, I'm losing respect for her. I'm trying to be a good son, but I need to live my life. Please help. Signed, At a Crossroads. Mm. Well, I mean, At a Crossroads, you're doing great for your part of it. You're, absolutely. you're absolutely, you're not on a crossroads. You're, you, you have found the you're right on the path. path. You're on the right path. Yeah. Um, and your happiness and, and fulfillment is, is, sounds like it's right where it should be. Uh, it's your mom who, as you tell us, has never been happy in her life. And so maybe your happiness and contentment in some ways is a kind of a betrayal of, of her unhappiness. 
Um, but it's also true that this is a huge and difficult thing for any parent. I do want to say I hope that at Crossroads, I hope you're reaching out to other people who have been through this experience yeah. and dealt with family members who show varying degrees of resistance. And at this point, I think it might be useful for us to, to welcome our guest on. We have here in the studio, which is a rare treat, we usually talk to people by phone, but we have the Portland writer Cooper Lee Bombardier. He's a visual artist as well as a writer. He lives in Portland. He teaches writing at Portland State University mm -hmm. and the University of Portland. His work has appeared in numerous journals around the land, including, I understand, The Rumpus, mm. where you and I have both written. Yes. Welcome to the show, Cooper. Thank you so much for having me. It's We're... really exciting to be here. I'm kind of a little over the moon. Right oh. Now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like... Well, we are We'll too. bring you right back down to earth. Okay. We are too. Really. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about your story. You know, he's obviously struggling with a mother who is resisting this transition. What was your experience? Well, I think, you know, I can relate to this person's letter so much because, you know, I, I started my transition, quote unquote transition, like 14, 15 years ago. And during that time, I think... And how old was, were you then? I was in my early 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I was really... You look good, man. I moisturize. <laughs> I know, like, how it's old like are early thirties. You look like you're in your late twenties. It's a, right. it's, 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 it's the trans found of youth. You know? The trans found of youth, man. Okay, right. sign du me duly up. noted. Okay, <laughs> but um, you know, I really had. I can relate to the letter so much because I had so much fear about if I do this, am I going to lose everybody? Am I going to yeah. have a relationship with my family? Am I going to lose friends? Am I going to ever find love? And you know, and I think at some point I realized that my fear about what other people might do or say was kind of holding me back from going forward in my life. And I think, you know, this letter writer in particular, I think, you know, I, I wonder if some of this fear is really more about their own doubt and their own fear mm. as opposed to whether the mother can actually keep along, you know? I mean, I think a, a few different things. I think that as trans people, we, I, I speak for myself, I can't speak for all trans people, but you know, we wrestle with these feelings for so long. And that by the time we articulate to somebody, it's like, it's like a bottle bursting open, you know what yeah. I mean? And then we, you know, we tell our parents and we expect them to get it like tomorrow, even mm -hmm. though we've been struggling with it for years and right. years. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I wonder how much the mom has any context for this yeah. experience in any way to, I wonder how much time they spend together. Has she been able to see her kid and right. his new identity? Right. Um, and interacting with peers, um, yeah. you know, just living his life. And I think, you know, it's really hard to be patient when we've waited so long to, yeah. to kind mm -hmm. of actualize and realize this is what's going yeah. on for us. But for those relationships we want to bring along with us, we do need to offer some patience, yeah. even mm -hmm. though it's hard. Even And two and yeah. a half years, you know, I, I think you've made such a, a good point. Two and a half years might seem a really long time to at a crossroads because he's in college and, you know, it's probably a lot has happened for him in these two and a half years. And, and he very poignantly says, you know, he's there, there is this little note of sorrow, like that he acknowledges his mother is losing her little girl. Were you impatient? Can you talk about uh, your parents' reaction? I think it, it took me a long time to talk with my folks about it. And, you know, we had gone through so many things. We had kind of a fraught relationship for a long time. I came out as queer. We went through that whole thing. And, <laughs> you know, I was always just, uh, you know, just sort of a, 
a weirdo. I liked books. I liked to write. I liked to make art. You know, I went to art school and I was always kind of, you know, went through my punk phase. I was always kind of going through some thing, it seemed like, that they didn't understand. And I, I would say now that my relationship with my family is better than it ever has been. And it took, like, not just my parents changing, but me changing. It mm. took me being able to say, like, this is where they're at and I want to have a relationship with them and I'll meet them there. So, you know, I just saw them last weekend at a family wedding on the East Coast and, you know, they accidentally call me she. I mean, I look like this, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I could just, you know, and then they corrected it really fast. I could choose to jump all over this or right. I could just also just let it go because yeah. they knew me a certain way for a really long time. And I was much older than this person, this writer, when he transitioned, right, or started this process. You know, my folks had a different attachment to me for uh, as their daughter. Right, 30 you know? some years, yeah. You know, it's not perfect or whatever, but they really try in their own fashion. And there's also this, you know, I have to have a willingness to say this is what what they can do. This is where they can meet me mm-hmm. and, and be okay with that, you know, because mm-hmm. um, it's important to me to have a relationship with them. It's scary. Like, it sounds to me like there's some sense that um, not only is this uh, this writer afraid of disapproval from the mother holding him back, but also, like, fear that he's going to lose the relationship with mm-hmm. her. It sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it sounds like he really wants her support. It's also really hard, too, when somebody doesn't get it and they ask you really mm-hmm. awkward questions or painful questions. But, you know, I would say that maybe he can direct... Oh, he was saying mom with a U. So I was thinking, yeah. like, is this person British or I don't know. Yeah. You know, but I don't know if they have P flag over there or whatever, but an organization like that where the mother can be with other parents and family members who are kind of going through the same thing and it's an okay place to ask all the weird questions, you know, right. might be helpful. Right. Or, to encourage her to get support from her peers. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really compassionate. And you know, the other thing is this this mention of the mother being unhappy. And I think that mm-hmm. anyone who grows up with a chronically unhappy parent gets kind of codependent about that, can feel oh, yeah. really, you know, like that it's my job as his or her child to make, you know, keep the parent happy. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. want to, mm-hmm. you know, unburden you from that at a crossroads. I know I can't wave a magic wand and, and make you believe that you're not responsible for your mother's happiness, but it, it's true. You are not responsible for your mother's mm-hmm. happiness. And honestly, I do think that in the end, the thing that will, will ultimately make her the happiest is seeing you happy. Mm-hmm. And she yeah, might not be able yeah. to see that yet and see that now, right. but it's true. Regardless of context, it's tough to say I'm losing respect for my mother, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and and I knew that she was unhappy. Like, she's been holding me back. I think that there's an undercurrent to this that is kind of upsetting. Like, my mom has always been unhappy, but I'm not going to allow myself to fall into that trap. Sure, so. Sure. Not that she's the culprit, but that, you know, it might be necessary for a period of time for you at a crossroads to find ballast in your life and, you know, be patient. And as much as I love your use of the word understanding, you know, not that not that it's a matter of whether your mom is going to choose to understand that this is who you are. This is the life you're leading. Um, I was interested Cooper, when, when you talked about your transition, people couldn't see it, but you sort of put it in air quotes. Is that mm. a term that you think is not doing good work for the process? Or? No, I think I think it's okay. I, I guess air quotes because the idea that it's just like a thing that starts and ends, right? Like in anybody's mm. life, like you're becoming who you are just right. like a... The Judy Jetson conveyor closet, you right. know, that kind of <laughs> right, right. come out or, the other side. It's almost like saying this phase. <laughs> sure, sure. And I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just uh, 
air quotes because that's when I started a medical transition. I started using hormones. Interesting. And, yeah. Okay. But, um, but you had transitioned in other ways before sure. that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Like I changed my name before that. I, I was using male pronouns with certain people in my life, like uh-huh. in a very kind of intimate, you know, intimate friends, close friends and lovers and whatnot. And, uh-huh. you know, kind of being like, this is how I identify. And they'd be like, okay, you know, or, right. or I don't understand, but you know, just sort of, you know, these sort of baby steps of right. like, so one thing I wonder about then, just in, in speaking very specifically to At A Crossroads, for two years he was, and probably longer than that really, realistically probably for several years, going through a transition that was emotional, psychological, and to some extent social. But the marker here is that six months ago or whatever, he started hormones. Mm. Was your experience that that really is a moment where there can be real, you know, a, a real rift? It's not just, well, they, they can't write it off as a phase. It right. really is a physical transition that is being enacted. Right. And I, I mean, I think, yeah, exactly. And I think that there's so many questions and it's like, you know, are you putting yourself at risk, your health or like, you know, if you're not transient, you just have no sort of disconnect from your body in that way. I think it would be hard to understand like why you would do something that would change you so much. And then as you know, again, I can't speak for all trans people, but for me, it was just kind of like, felt like I was just jumping into a deep lake and I had no idea what was at the bottom, you know, like, I just Mm -hmm. don't know. Hmm. I mean, I could research all these things. And back then when I, when I started my process, there there was not the proliferation of like YouTube videos, YouTube vlog diaries of people kind of going through their process. Like it wasn't all online. There were just some rickety old websites um, or some books, but there was very little out there. And so there's so much access to information, but it's still for each person a difficult journey to go through, right? And um, in in some ways, I wonder if all the exposure in pop culture and, and media and whatnot, if, if, if it makes people f- seem like it should be easier than it is, because for each person, it's still like, you know, you just don't know what's going right. to how things will change for you, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I would say that there was changes that I couldn't anticipate. And I think, yeah, that in some ways for me, it was kind of like, this is, I'm walking through a door here. Mm-hmm. That I, can I ask you, you know, was there a moment that you can think of when you did start the hormonal physical transition where you were going to see your parents and knowing that your appearance had really altered and that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Were there, is yeah. there a memory like the that you have? the first time they really saw you yeah. differently. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it, it was, um, it was actually really great. I was going to go home for the holidays, which I hadn't done in many, probably for like a, 10 years. Wow. Um, and I decided to go and, uh, you know, my, I lost a, a younger brother when I was 21. My 18 year old brother was killed. And at some point mm-hmm. I realized like I was so busy just, you know, in my own bubble in some ways about my parents that I, it, it took me a minute to realize that, you know, they've been without two of their kids for all these holidays and mm-hmm. the holidays wow. might not be a big deal to me, but it's a big deal to them. And, yeah. and it would really mean a lot to them if I just went home. So then I was like, that's oh. called growing up. Yep. Yes. That's the it idea that it's not yeah. about just you. It's like, yeah. well, it means exactly. something to them. That's yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, this is maybe a tangent, but I think, you know, transitioning was something I needed to do to grow up, you mm. know, and to wow. say, this is my life and I'm going to be an adult now and take mm-hmm. responsibility for my life. And, mm. you know, and so I wrote a letter and I basically said, you know, this is what's going on. And some of you might not understand, but you know, I'm really excited to just tell you 
and in the hopes that we can be closer going forward, that you can know this about my life and that we can, you know, reconnect. And um, there was like a little informational like resource pamphlet that I stuck <laughs> in the envelope. And it took me so long to get the stupid letters in the mail. I made like 20 copies right. and um, ad- addressed them to all these relatives. But I was so scared that I kept procrastinating. And when I finally sent them in the mail, I just pictured like one of my relatives, like going to the mailbox and getting the letter as I walk up and being like, Uh. what the hell? (laughs) But uh, that's not what happened at all. You're so brave. You're so brave to do that. That's wonderful. You know, and the thing was, I realized, you know, some of my relatives were just, you know, maybe a little bit less... uh, enthusiastic than others and that's totally okay i don't take it personally but you know my grandmother who's like in her 80s was just like why haven't you been around for so long you know it really means a lot to your folks that you're here yeah and my aunt cecilia who's like my hero growing up three years older than me i like totally idolized her um was just amazing and just told you know wrote wrote me an email the next day and just said that she was so happy to see me and it really meant a lot to her that i was there and my letter was brave and i mean it was just above and beyond supportive and and they love you yeah, and you. I realized that like I was just—I was so afraid that I yeah. just assumed everybody would want to reject me. And I, and all I could say to this uh, this writer that I think you know, his mother might have more of a capacity to embrace than he understands. But I think it's going to take time. You know, mm-hmm. I think it'll take time for her to have a, a context for what's happening. Yeah. So here's my question: It sounds like unexpectedly, beautifully, you know, you're you're. Family was warm and embracing more than you expected. But I've got to imagine that you've talked with friends, other people who have transitioned, who have met with less happy results when they met with their families and tried to go through the same process, sort of arc of understanding. Are there stories that you can think of from friends? Yeah, Yeah, many, many friends who have not had such a positive experience and who... um, you know, for some folks, it, it, it's this idea of like, I'm not going to put myself in a position where people are going to treat me badly. So for them, it's a boundary. Like I'm going to not engage. Mm-hmm. Um, other folks have been really rejected and that's, um, and that really happens and it's really hard. And should that happen with this writer, I think it's really important to kind of ground himself. Like you said, that idea of like creating your own base in your own life and, and kind of ballast, I think was the word you used. And and also really just shoring up with like chosen family and friends. Hmm. Um, you know, for me, it was really important when I went through a time where my relationship was not great with my folks. It was really important to kind of keep that avenue open, that it could transform at some point. But then I also during that time did a lot of my own growing up. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I think that's a key point. I love the way you talk about that you did meet in the middle. And I think mm-hmm. that's useful mm-hmm. advice for At A Crossroads, that it's not just his mother uh, growing into this new knowledge and yeah. this new experience, but but him as well. You know, yeah. you certainly changed over those years that you were yeah. that that you were moving towards actually starting to make a transition and coming out as trans mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of those things. It's not just one party suddenly opening their mind. It's actually right. the relationship right. evolving. Right. So thank you. I mean, what a, I think this has been a really illuminating conversation. I hope at a crossroads that it's been helpful to you, and we wish you luck. We're going to now switch gears. Yes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, family is a big thing, but so is love and romance. Mm -hmm. And our next letter uh, touches on that. Would you read it, Steve? I will. Dear Sugars, my question is this. How do I get over the fear that I'll never find love? When I type that out, it seems absurd, even to me. I know that many people feel the same way at times and that people who open themselves up to love are generally likely to find it. 
But I don't feel that to be true in my heart, and here's why. I'm a transgender man. I can't help but feel that being trans makes me an exception to the general rules about love. I know that I'm lovable and deserving of love, but I can't imagine that someone will get through the initial phases of attraction to learn what I have to offer. I have a lot of female friends who talk about wanting men who are well-endowed in height, in their wallet size, and in their pants. Obviously, I'm out of luck on the last one, but I'm also out of luck on the others. I'm five foot two because I went through female puberty, and I make social worker pay. I've internalized the message that no woman is going to be attracted to me as I am, so what good is my great personality? I imagine women say these things partly to flip the typical narrative of men placing impossible standards on women, and I get it, but it kills my self-esteem. I've been in therapy before and throughout my transition, and so I've attempted to work on my self-esteem issues, but regardless of the progress I'm making, every failed attempt at courtship sets me back to hopelessness. If giving up on love were an option for me, I probably would have done it by now, but my big heart won't quit. I want to be a warrior for love, as Cheryl suggests, but right now I feel like I ran into battle without my armor. Can you please help me figure out how to defeat the monster that is hopelessness? Sincerely, aspiring warrior for love. Ah, (laughs) as the person who wrote that phrase, be a warrior for love. Yes. Aspiring warrior for love. I want to say you, you are a warrior for love. The whole message is about running into battle without your armor. That's what being a warrior for love is. It's about being vulnerable. It's about taking risks. It's about being brave and emotionally intelligent and not trying to find adversaries. It's trying to really open your heart. Mm -hmm. And you've done that beautifully. So that's the first thing I want to say, okay? We're going to scratch out aspiring. We're going to give you, what what do we give warriors for love? Do they they get a- Knight them with a, knight them with a- They get a knight, yes, we'll (laughs) knight them. So Cooper, Will you please tell us about your love life? Have you struggled? <laughs> By the way, it doesn't matter who the guest is or what the subject is. That's like the second question ask. Cheryl asked. So just tell us about it. I know well, you're grieving right now, but tell know, us about your love life. And obviously, too, like the first thing I want to say, just, you know, as a cisgendered person, you know, this so many, we, we all have this kind of fear. This isn't just about being a trans totally. man, you know, mm-hmm. that like, am I going to be loved? Are Is is the way I appear, like, are these right. things going to be barriers, to you know, when I'm looking for love? So I want to say that this is a really unique universal conundrum oh yeah and then she oh, wants yeah. to ask you about your sex life <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty awesome oh wow <laughs> all right um, I, and awesome I, like that's that's great <laughs> i love it oh uh, i i just got married i uh, saw yeah and uh yeah congratulations my, thank you uh, you know and i feel really lucky and i would say that i definitely had a lot of um failed attempts along the way and I, I, I'm with somebody who now it's just so good. I can't even believe it's possible. Mm. But there are a lot okay, of, so a lot of, a lot of turkey You're totally drunk on it. Okay, he's you're like, like yeah. a newlywed. I mean, it's not Holy easy. crap, right. <laughs> but, but, but now put yourself in the, you know, in, oh, yeah. in, in the position of this guy, he's really feeling like I, 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 I'm, there's no way I can measure up. That's, oh, yeah. there's, love is not out there for me. Right. How do I keep from making every failed attempt at courtship, you know, set me back to hopelessness? Does that, did you, yeah, did you go I mean, through a phase where you felt like, okay, uh, I've made this transition. I know who I am, but like, is anybody going to love me? Right. But this is really right. specifically to about his height, I think, right? And, I mean, and his, and his well, income. And, 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 yeah, it's a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah but 
Because those are two, these are two things that we highly associate with masculinity mm-hmm. and being a man. Mm-hmm. You make mm-hmm. money and you're, you know, the sort of tall, dark and handsome. And so these are two, you know, very specific issues that he's, that he's, I think, afraid of. Mm-hmm. I I just yeah this writer uh, warrior like you said already a warrior is so eloquent and emotionally intelligent and I'm just I, it's such a beautiful letter and I think that you know it's just part of the the process of you know you kind of go out there without your armor and you get squished you know mm-hmm. and <laughs> and and I, I you know sometimes I feel a little bit bummed about some of my failed relationships but then I also think about well where did it bring me like in terms of my evolution as a human being and my ability to relate to others you know it might not have worked out it might have been painful but it did kind of push me along on my path of being a person and able to do better you know and I think the the willingness to, to just go and keep trying is the right thing you mm-hmm. know and I think so many of us, you know, we have our list of perceived inadequacies that we carry around with us and we're like, oh, this isn't going to work because, you know, I don't have any money and I, uh, you know, I'm this short or I weigh this much, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I have this much hair and not enough hair, you know, like <laughs> this much money or, right. I mean, part of what I would say, and this is sort of like the, the old punk me is just like spending less time listening to those messages, right? Yeah. The, uh-huh. in, in the friends it might be lovely people, but they seem to be kind of caught up in the messages of like, this is what I need to find in a man. Right. And, you know, and to the extent possible, tune out those messages and spend time in places where people are kind of exhibiting other values, you know, like yep. this person's values as a social worker, they obviously want to make a difference in the world and care for other people. Is there, you know, a place or things that they can do where they're going to engage with people who are Uh going to see all these really wonderful qualities about them. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the difficulty for you, aspiring warrior for love, is like you might have to step away from people who, for reasons that, you know, you don't have to be angry at them or blame them, but don't listen to them go through their stupid Cosmo quiz list. Yeah. Well, and I think we, we answer this question over and over. You know, am I too fat to be loved? No. Am I too poor to be loved? No. Am I too, you know, fill in the blank to be loved? The answer is always no. Communist to be loved for me. Too, too much of a Marxist to be loved. No. I also think it's true that some people are going to not want to date you because of your height. And, What's kind of cool and beautiful about that is it's think of it as like a winnowing process. Yes, like you yes. don't want you don't <laughs> want to date those people anyway, right. right? You know, one thing that I think was really uh, telling to me in this letter too was that I went through a phase of like I'm never going to be loved. Like this, I'm doing this thing, and who's ever going to love me? And I was so afraid that that feeling propelled me to make some lackluster choices and romantic partners. Mm. And, you know, not to disparage anybody I've been in a romantic relationship with, but just places, you know, people who couldn't possibly meet me where I wanted to be met, you know, and I couldn't meet them. And it was, um, you know, I, I think I had a feeling of like, I got to just take whatever I can get, you know, like, because I'm doing this weird thing. Who's going to love me? And I don't hear that from this writer, which I feel like puts him like light years ahead of me. But just, uh, you know, that he has a really great sense of self-esteem and, and self-awareness and self-knowledge. And... um I sort of feel like we should just like send out his email address. I think he's going to get a lot of dates after. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I have to say, I keep thinking about this letter I answered when I was writing the Dear Sugar column. And it was this man who signed his name Beast. He was born with this disease that that had made half of his body not grow at the natural Mm. rate. And he was in a wheelchair and he had all, he had a significant physical deformity. And which is the reason he called himself beast. He said, I look like a beast. And he's like, you know, most people are not going to love me 
they're going to actually be physically repulsed by me. Should I just give up on love? And I said, absolutely not. I will never give you permission. He asked me for permission to give up on love. Mm. You know, so many people read that letter. And one of the first things that started to happen is I started to get emails from people saying, listen, will you please give Beast my email address? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I want to talk to him. And what was funny is he didn't say in his letter if he was gay or straight. So I was like, listen, you know, I don't don't know. I got lots of options for you. So six weeks passes and he writes to me. And so I said, listen, all of these people have said that they would like to get in contact with you. And can I give you these email addresses? And he says, well, uh, I'll do it for you because, you know, you said that I have to be brave. Mm-hmm. So, okay, this makes me I'm mortified, but, you know, so I did it. And then time another, like a year or, or more passes. And I come out of sugar and my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, comes out. And mm-hmm. I'm on my book tour. And I'm in this independent bookstore in D.C. What's it called? Politics and Prose. Politics and Prose. And this lovely young woman approaches the table and she's got tears in her eyes. And she says, I need to thank you for introducing me to my boyfriend. And I looked up at her and I said, who's your boyfriend? And she said, Beast. Oh my God, it's so And wild. all of these people, all these people around her in the line, like burst into tears. And it was just such a beautiful, oh you know, end to that yeah. that story. And I don't know what happened next, you know? I don't know what happened next. I'm Warrior but for I Love know is now he... expecting big things okay. from you, Cheryl Strait. <laughs> I, know, I, know I know that he found love, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and when we find love, we sometimes lose love. And we, But, you know, get in the game, Warrior. Yeah. But, but get in the you know, game. Stay in the battle without the armor but, and see but what happens. Make sure you're on the... Boy, we're just going to mangle this military metaphor. But, <laughs> you know, you, the right battlefield. Yeah. You know, stop treating yourself as damaged goods and figure out right. that some beauty is out there waiting for you yeah. uh, and wants what you have, which is knowing who you are, humility, the strength to go through, all the stuff that we recognize in the first half of the letter that makes these sort of superficial markers feel to us listening from a distance very trivial. Yeah. Right. And I think, yeah, and that's a great point too, that if these coworkers are kind of buying into this idea of like, you know, the the Mr. Right magical unicorn person who's going to come and do all these things, you know, look this certain way and be like, you know, six foot three. And maybe there's love right under his nose and he's kind of like not seeing it. So you said you just got married. I did. Can can you tell us, how'd you find love? We were actually introduced by mutual friends who were like, you have to meet each other. And what was so great is that she just totally engaged my brain. And we had many, many conversations about you know, issues that we're both really passionate about. And I was like, this person is so hot. Right. <laughs> like, right yeah. She just, it gets me, you know, she gets my brain. And um, it just was a fast moving train. Yeah. It's also yeah. instructive yeah. to say, she, you know, she got my brain, not she got my wallet, she got my height, you know, yeah. all this other yeah. crap. I'm like an adjunct professor. I'm like, have no money at all. So she doesn't love me for that. You know, right. <laughs> you know she's a lot taller than me. So I'll say that to Warrior. Interesting. That, um, there you go. That she's significantly taller than me. I can't believe oh. you left this detail until this final, that, that she's taller than I, you. It just, it just occurred to me. <laughs> Thank goodness. Sorry. But that, in a, in a way, no, that's, that, that's, she's taller than you. It doesn't even occur to you as an that's important right. signifier I mean. because it's it just doesn't matter. Or, you know, it's not it's the central your thing mind. that matters. It's not, it's not, it doesn't right. matter in your love and your relationship yeah that's beautiful and you guys are obviously <laughs> going to be tremendously wealthy she's an academic you're <laughs> I'm a writer academia. i mean we're that's just, a writer that's we're, right yeah, we're rolling right. in it yeah yeah
Well, Cooper, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. Yeah, it was, it was such wonderful a talking to you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. What a delight yeah. to talk to Cuba. You know, as, as he was talking, and I just loved what he had to say, that it's about the brain. You know, you fall in love with somebody's mind. You fall in love with their personality. You fall in love with, you know, their values to some extent. But, you know, he also said that about family. You know, his grandmother said, yeah. I miss you. Right. I love you. And it was, in general, his family's reaction. Right. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. And all of yeah. these ex- external things don't yeah. so much matter when we really love someone. Yeah. It was interesting, too. I thought when you hear individuals and you stop thinking about a population as an aggregate and you hear individual stories, then they start becoming you know, human beings. And then you realize, oh, we're all really sort of struggling to find love and make peace with our families and find solace in our families and be welcomed home and all this stuff that's just universal. And I was thinking about... And it's an odd association, but how sort of brutal that image that was put in my head by that sports editor. Again, because of his own fear and misunderstanding, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like that's what we do when we, we kind of castrate the stories that really allow us to understand human beings and stop worrying about they're this gender. They're that. It, we just start thinking about, well... Have they found happiness and love like I'm trying to find happiness and love? Have they been able to make, make peace with their families and you know be a good whatever it is, son, mm-hmm. daughter, parent, uncle, aunt? And so I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk to Cooper, to hear these letters, and I'm super determined that we talk more and you know, just, just so that we can hear more stories and start to sort of get ourselves out of that sad, stunned state that I was in as a, as a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. The way forward is to keep on talking. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR. We're produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. We're recording today in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman of Talkback Sound and Visual. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Please listen and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you want to leave a comment for us there, we'd love to get your reviews Mm -hmm. and feedback. Write to us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com. We'd love to get your emails. We want to hear from you. 